Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. Hello, firecrackers, and welcome to a new episode of The Honest Uproar. My guest today is Dr. Kimia Dennis. She is an educator, community advocate, researcher, and consultant. Uh, She specializes in mental health, suicide, law enforcement, criminal justice system, and sexual health and freedom. How are you today, Kimia? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. No, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. I was actually looking forward to this interview because I see that you're really active online, posting very interesting things and talking about, you know, subjects that are very important uh, in today's political climate. So before we get into that, I would like you to, I mean, if you want to add anything to the introduction, anything that you want our audience to know about you, uh, that would be awesome. Okay. Well, I am a criminologist and a sociologist, and I'm born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, and now I live in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm very heavy on community activism, community visibility, and I require my students to do field work when they take my courses. Mm -hmm. So I require people to get out of the classroom, away from the books, and actually do community work. Because first and foremost, we are our cultures. So when people see me, they don't see a criminologist. They see an African diaspora or African-American or Black woman. So that's one thing that I stress as well, the importance of knowing ourselves outside of our field of expertise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what kind of community service do your students uh, usually do? Well, so a lot of students are interested in learning more about mental health work, about LGBTQIA advocacy. I also do work to address serial killers. I actually created a course about serial killers. So some students, knowing they can't interview an actual serial killer, mm-hmm. they actually will speak to somebody at, uh, in the FBI or something like that. And there have just been all sorts of creative ways. Um, Some students have been interested in researching more about sexual freedom and sexual expression and have contacted different organizations to address those topics. Wow, that's very interesting. So I see you specialize in several things. You have like mental health, suicide, which is, uh, I'm I'm guessing, linked to mental health, uh, law enforcement, Mm -hmm. criminal justice, and then sexual health and reproductive health and freedom. Which one would you say is the one that you work most in? Well, so all of these, so suicide is not always connected to a mental illness. So one thing I highlight with people that all of the topics that I address are connected with each other. And so the ones that I deal with the most on a daily basis are the mental health and the child-free work. But again, these all connect very closely. For example, when we talk about people's behavior, whether it's legal or illegal behavior, when we interview people, you might often find that if there's not a mental illness, there might still be some emotional concerns. And a lot of it also ties to what people learn about their physical health, mental health, and reproductive choices. Mm -hmm. I oftentimes have colleagues in criminology who don't understand how 
child free, for example, pertains to crime. I said, well, that's the thing. When we tell everyone they have to have babies, and then we're shocked that people are finding a way to illegally make money to take care of their family that includes children, we have to understand how pronatalism, pushing people to have babies, shapes to certain outcomes like finding illegal money to take care of those babies they shouldn't be having in the first place, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. another way that it all connects. So you're child for yourself. Yes, I'm permanently 100% child free by choice. And may I ask how and when did you make this decision? So I made the final decision. Well, now I'm 42. So I made the final decision when I was in my 30s. And I made it by just noticing that I had zero interest, zero desire. And that's the only reason I need it. That's, yeah, that's the only reason anyone needs, it's true. (laughs) But but I'm guessing you had been thinking about it for a long time or you had felt that maybe you weren't, you didn't need a baby in your life. Like most women are like, oh, I want to have a baby, I need a baby. Some of us don't really feel that. I don't even think most women feel that. I think that most women are taught that they have to feel that, but we can't read people's minds. So I never believe that most women think that. I think that they're told they have to think that. I never really thought about having kids. So for me, it wasn't something either way. I was just like apathetic. Like, I guess it's supposed to happen. And then when I decided, nah, that was just it. Mm -hmm. I never really thought about having kids. And so your interest in, uh, uh, I mean, being yourself child-free, did that spark your interest in all of these areas, like specifically looking at them through the child-free lens? Well, I, I conducted the first known study solely with African diaspora people around the world. I started that research in 2013 because when I wanted to read more about child tree, it was all white people. Mm-hmm. So the website, Facebook groups, the research, it was all white. And that's around the world, all white. But I was like, okay, so I can't see my own people in this. And that's what motivated me to start this research and form a collective group of African diaspora people around the world, some of whom already knew each other before my research and some of whom enjoyed meeting each other after my research. So okay. yes, I was motivated because our people were not represented in the present research and in uh, present like meetup groups or anything. Yeah, no, unfortunately that's the case in many, many areas. And not mm-hmm. only for African-American people, I'm Latina myself. So I also okay. have the same, the same, you know, people of color in general, I think we are misrepresented, uh, not misrepresented, I would say underrepresented in, in things that uh-huh. are actually very important for us in terms of uh, things that are related to either politics or, or things that are, uh, you know, social. And this is also one of the reasons why I wanted to to talk to you, because I think it's very interesting that you're work is also focused on African-American people and what it is that they experience basically in today's society. Yes. So not only African-American, but when I say African diaspora, it's people of immediate African descent around the world. That includes African-Americans, Afro-Canadians, people in the Caribbean, that includes Afro-Europeans, African people on the continent of Africa, so all around. So looking at some similarities, across race when it comes to the decision to be child-free and also differences. So, for example, for the most part, women in almost every culture and every society, girls and women are told 
from the moment they're little that they need to find a little baby and want to have a baby. But that could perhaps be stronger for people of immediate African descent who also view women having children as a form of freedom in cultures that are traditionally oppressed and have their families taken from them. So, for example, transatlantic slavery. But even before that happened. So the idea is that if you're accustomed to having your culture and your family stolen from you, now you'll see having children as a form of freedom, liberation, expression, and cultural fortitude. Mm-hmm. So those are the issues that I wanted to delve further into and, and understand that because I also specialize in race and ethnic relations. So I wanted to see how that could factor into child-free decisions and child-free lives. Yeah. What are the, the most important differences that you found between your study and the studies that you had seen before, which are centered in, in white people, white women? Well, the, 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 the part that I was not shocked to find was that African descent women were more easy to find than African descent men. So it was more difficult to find men who, first of all, are of African descent and wanted to talk about it being child free. Mm-hmm. But perhaps there also are fewer African diaspora men who are child free in the first place. And I say that because men in general, and perhaps especially African descent men, are less likely to be told to think about this kind of stuff. So there was one, there were actually two African diaspora men who I interviewed, and they said that they're child free now because they haven't had children, but if they have unprotected sex and she gets pregnant, they'll keep the child. So that's an example of how, yeah. So I mean, of course, they can't make her not keep the child, but they're not going to do anything to prevent it. Like they weren't talking about getting a vasectomy. (laughs) They weren't talking about wearing condoms. So the difference there is a gender difference. So the African diaspora women were more likely to be sterilized by choice Mm-hmm. and to require ways to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, and if it does, more likely be pro-choice regarding abortion access. Uh, and speaking about abortion, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I've been seeing what's happening, of course, in the U.S. Uh, regarding uh, abortion laws and some of the states that have already banned abortion, basically. And um, what is the impact of what's happening right now in terms of, you know, this political decisions uh, in women, uh, African-American women or women in general? So I would just say from a general sense that African-Americans, generally speaking, are very pro-life. Contrary to popular misconception, African-Americans and people of African descent around the world I'm very traditional conservative, and it's oftentimes tied to very traditional notions of gender, traditional notions of religion and spirituality as well. And I say that because we're, we as a people are oftentimes depicted as these heathens jumping from bushes and trees with no morals, no cultures, no standards, and that's just historically and currently false. And I also say that because I have volunteered for two Planned Parenthood committees. And a big part of that was being the only non-white person on these committees and urging Planned Parenthood to be more visible 
in our communities, be more visible at events. And finally, I got one of the committees to be very visible. And I had to explain to the white committee members that I said, you all are comfortable because you all have not encountered my people. You have not encountered my people who will host community events where they slam Planned Parenthood, talk about Planned Parenthood as ungodly, talk about Planned Parenthood as eugenics, genocide, doing events about Margaret Sanger as though Planned Parenthood still holds on to that model presented by Margaret Sanger. So that's one of those things that I want um, organizations to understand here. We're very traditional conservative cultures around the world. So people like myself, who are socially liberal, have to really fight against my own people and let my people know that we can love our culture and hold on to our culture while understanding that there's certain things we're holding on to that are harming our culture, such as forced reproduction and not teaching sexual health and not teaching AIDS and so forth. Mm, Yes. I I read somewhere, um, you know, related to what you just said, that minorities in the U.S., so I mean minorities, um, they were referring to, of course, Latino women, African-American women, Mm -hmm. maybe Asian, that they have a higher uh, birth rate than white American women. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my thought was, um, I mean, yes, it's true that, uh, for example, in Latinas, Latino culture, or Latinx culture, mm-hmm. uh, we also come from very traditional and very, um, you know, close-minded societies, which are very tied in with religion. So I understand mm-hmm. where you're coming from in terms of, you know, uh, abortion is bad and you need to reproduce and you have to have kids because otherwise you're not fulfilling your, your role as a woman in this planet, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it just, it, I can't help but wonder how much of that, because we know that there's a lot of women who actually have kids because they're being pressured into it. They don't really want to. And, uh-huh. and you know, how that affects, I mean, the, the fact that there isn't an easy access to reproductive health education or, uh, you know, sexual uh, services and, and what's going on with the abortion laws now. It's very... Uh-huh. It's very demoralizing in the sense that it's mm-hmm. like not, we're not giving these women any chances, basically. Right, right. And the important thing to note is that there are organizations that primarily reach African Americans, Latinas, American Indians, and certain groups of Asian descent. So there are organizations that do that, but these organizations are scant. There's not a whole lot of them. And there's not a lot of funding. So it's people like us volunteering a lot of times money out of our own pocket and our own time. And that's an important distinction because I tell people that it's very difficult for us to collaborate with health organizations because for the most part, health organizations are white people. They're mostly cisgender, heterosexual, middle, upper class uh, white people. Mm -hmm. And there's white people whose lifestyles are different, but they're still white. So they're getting a lot of the funding, the grant writing, and collaborating with them oftentimes requires allowing them to pretend whiteness is the main topic without discussing whiteness. So what they'll pretend is that race is not a focus, unless we're talking about brown people. Yeah. And they'll pretend that it's mere coincidence that we're all white. 
but white is not even the topic of interest. I'm like, well, white is a race, <laughs> racial category. Yeah. So that's why um, when I talk about this work, I talk about the organizations that need our funding. And when, again, we're not telling people to erase your culture, but we are saying that there are African-Americans, for example, who do want abortion access. It doesn't mean that they're going to run around telling people get an abortion. It means that we're running around telling people you have options. Yeah. And on one end, it's difficult because we come from cultures where we want freedom, we want options. But on the other side of that, there are certain options that people consider very white. There are actually a documentary and videos that I show students sometimes that are on YouTube that talk about people who claim that being gay is a white thing, mental illness is white, abortion is white. So therefore, if you do any of these things, you've been whitewashed, you've been assimilated into whiteness. Therefore, to prove your true culture, you'll just pop out babies, you'll get some STIs, but don't get tested because that's white. And so that's that ongoing cycle that not all of our people believe, but it's prevalent enough and passed down enough from generation to generation that it makes it difficult for K-12 and some colleges and community organizations to try to change that because people will say the right thing when they're in front of you, but when they're going home, they're conveying the same falsehood that's being passed down and taught to everyone in the family. Well, I'm actually very surprised to hear that, like surprised in the sense that I would not have ever imagined that there's such videos telling people not to do this or that or whatever, because that's being whitewashed. And we're talking about things that are, you know, should be accessible to any human being, you know, doesn't matter what race you are. So I'm wondering, what is it that prompts this kind of videos? Is it, you know, what type of people are the ones that are producing and posting these videos up on YouTube? <laughs> well, so for the African-Americans who are doing such videos, I consider them racial extremists in the sense that it's very much based in traditional religion, whether it's Christianity, forms of Muslim, Nation of Islam, and so forth, especially Black men. But it's very, it's based on the falsehood that there's a certain group who knows the real meaning of Blackness, therefore, they're going to tell the rest of us what Blackness is and how we can fit into that category. And so when I teach race and ethnic relations, I talk about that in addition to colorism and the history, centuries, of how all this stuff keeps forming and keeps repeating itself. And so I always tell people, when these videos are created on YouTube, for every one of us who hates them, there's a lot of people who are actually attending these presentations in our communities. Absolutely. So I try not to silence people. Instead of calling them all fools, you fools and idiots, that makes people just silence more or argue with you. Instead, I want them to come out and tell us that they believe this. So when they share that they believe this falsehood, that's an even healthier environment where we can have these discussions. Yeah. It's tough to be patient, though, because there are a lot of falsehoods that are believed that include by medical professionals, people who should know better. But a lot of times people rely on their cultural beliefs even when they really know that's not true. Yeah, it's, it, for me, it's definitely mind-blowing to hear all the stories of women going to doctors 
and asking them for a voluntary sterilization surgery. And doctors going, mm-hmm. you don't know any better. You're too young. You might ha- you're going to want to have children later. Mm-hmm. And these are, like you said, like, you know, prof- like professionals, health professionals, people that should mm-hmm. know better, that should know yeah. that not only it is our choice, but also you're there to provide a professional service and not to give your opinion on my personal life. Yeah, and exactly. And that's uh, most medical offices and hospitals don't have set in stone policies regarding that. So it's really up to the doctors, of course. And it's practically impossible to have a policy. But one thing they know is that we can't sue them. Like if people are chosen sterilized, they can't change their mind and be like, I'm going to sue you. They can try, but it wouldn't last long in a court of law. So a lot of times when medical professionals deny, usually it's denied for women, but sometimes men, usually it's not because they're afraid of getting sued. They don't want that their own morality to be tricked by giving someone sterilization when they think everyone should pop out babies. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. Moving on, let's talk about mental health. Now, that's something that I'm very passionate about because I think we need to talk a lot more about mental health. There isn't enough people out there talking about this. Yeah. So uh, I want to like just hear you, you know, talk about your experience on exploring specifically mental health. So what I specialize in, including doing consulting work and presentations for health professionals, I specialize in culturally conscious mental health trainings and presentations. And that's an important distinction because I've been trained in many mental health trainings and suicide prevention trainings, and they're very cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all. And sometimes they'll mention things like age variance or they might mention race. But I tell people, when we talk about schizophrenia, for example, there are a lot of people who are hearing voices, and of course you'll never know. And African-Americans, for example, are more likely to be labeled as criminals than whites. And I mean, that's a huge topic in and of itself. So with the mental health work that I do, I explain to mental health professionals that you need to understand different cultures and how different mental health conditions can be expressed in different ways. Also, the work I do includes expanding how we define suicide. So, for instance, the number one cause of death for black males ages 15 to 34 is homicide. Mm-hmm. And what I'm looking into is how this can be formed of suicide, what it means when you know you might die from this altercation and you voluntarily go into the altercation. There's not really data on this topic other than speaking with black men. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to find black men, of course, to speak with who will tell you I'll die for my hood or I'll die for my family. But, but that's just an example of how I believe we need to expand how we define mental health. We need to go beyond the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Model. Um, it's a good model, but it's very white-based. So all of this stuff is white-based. And white-based, man-based, meaning white men 
are the, supposed to be this objective, culturally neutral standard to which everyone else in the world can be based. And so when I tell people to expand how they define mental health, it includes maybe you've diagnosed someone and they really don't have a mental illness. Maybe that's the personality type. And that's when I ask mental health professionals, how do you really distinguish a mental health condition from someone's personality seemingly quirky? And a lot of people, they, they can't fathom being around someone with a different personality who they don't assume the person has a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So that's something also that I speak with professionals about. Wow. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, I had yeah. actually thought before about there are many cultural differences, not only among, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different countries, but also, of course, races. And so mm-hmm. um, there's some things that maybe Latino, Lat- Latinx people do that maybe white people don't understand and, you know, vice versa or whatever. And that could actually yeah. be a factor, of course, of misdiagnosing people. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't yeah. thought about it in terms of, you know, just personality. Yeah, so personality type, also people not understanding cultural language and people assuming that someone has a condition. Also, we have to be honest because we oftentimes will tell Latinx people, oh, you need a Latinx therapist. But having a black therapist, Latinx therapist, a woman therapist, a transgender therapist does not mean the person will be able to act on their cultural consciousness of their own culture. We have to remember these are health professionals who are most often taught and trained since undergrad about a white-based system based on white research. Oftentimes, diversity, inclusion, and culture are used as catchwords, but there's no assessment of what it really means and how it's really supposed to manifest. So you can have a surface-level diverse medical office where you have a lot of brown doctors, a lot of brown nurses, a lot of brown therapists, for example, and none of them know what they're doing. None of them know how to reach brown people. And I've done presentations, for example, for black social workers, black mental health professionals, and they'll let you know that there's not but so much that they can do to help their own people. Yeah. It's because like- they don't want to lose their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And, I, you know, it just make me it just make me think it's like the system is broken from the get go. It has yeah. to it's, it's based on education, you know, that has been the same for God knows how many years. And uh, nobody or not nobody, but there's a very small group of people that have actually taken the, the work or the time to just look into it from these different angles and try and, and make a difference for example, your case, which I think it's, it's really cool. Well, thank you. I mean, there are a lot of people doing presentations and trainings, but like I always tell people, how many presentations and trainings do you need? Yeah. You're not really dismantling the system. My role is to tear down the system and start from scratch. Just like when we talk about the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. these are all systems that are formed in an injustice-based way. And when trying to add advice and consulting, everyone's going to say, oh, we're not higher up. We can't make that decision. So that's when we have to tell them, excuses have expired. Now we're going to tear this apart, and we're going to say, how can we start from scratch in a different way? Yeah. We're not going to keep doing presentations. We're not going to keep doing training. We're not going to keep creating PowerPoints, because that's not social change. 
And so I tell people, I'm not going to tell you too much information for free. (laughs) You have to hire me as a consultant because what I want to do with these health-based organizations is teach them how to dissect from top to bottom, bottom up, in the middle, tear it apart, and do six months to annual assessments. And that's all the information I'm going to get from there. But I'm not going to do it for free, I tell people. Of course. <laughs> I've been a volunteer with health organizations for years. Yeah. And it was very quick to see that they wanted ideas so they could say they were doing something. But you know they're not doing anything. <laughs> mm. You know they're not really doing anything. And that's why I say the health system, people want to blame the government. Well, government funding, actually, not, it's not government funding fault. You know, the government is people. Like when people say it's bureaucratic structure, that's not like an alien pointing down at us. <laughs> These are people, right? Yeah. And people right. have cultural identities. They have races, ethnicities, ages, socioeconomic status. So we need to get away from this abstract concept, theoretical crap that people do to distract the topic. Whenever someone says it's the government's fault, it's funding's fault for mental health crises, I said, no, it's people's fault. Now call them out by name embarrass them and if you can't do that then explain why and hold yourself accountable you know this actually makes me think about how social work or social social change has definitely has to come about with action yes it has to it has to like there's no other way and and you can call it whatever you want you can call it a revolution and uproar you can call it tearing the system down and building it back up but it has to come with action so it is very helpful to have someone tell us that this is what needs to be done and I can guide you through the first part. But if people aren't willing to put in the actual time and effort and energy, then there isn't a lot of impact. Yeah, I mean, there are people who are, who are putting time and energy and money, but there's too many organizations. Like we have so many organizations. I have colleagues who work and created these organizations. I have a consulting group. I do individual consulting. So there's so many of us. But what I focus on is collaboration. Mm-hmm. I tell people, stop reinventing the wheel. Stop trying to be the one who's named the first one on this publication. That's not sincere social change. So a lot of the times people want to do it by themselves. And they, have, they want to have hundreds of organizations because nobody can share ideas and admit that their idea is jacked up. Yeah. And they need to integrate this other idea without being bothered the fact that it wasn't their idea first. And again, we're just talking about like basic issues that humans have had for thousands of years, right? Yeah. It's like having a war, basically. It's like wartime, except we're talking about criminal justice processes, health processes. It's basically like a war of policies, procedures, who's going to be at the top of the ladder making the most money for no reason. Who's going to be considered the expert, even if they don't know what the heck they're talking about, just seeing them walk in a room makes you think they know something. And that's usually white men and older white men in particular, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, and we have that in my field of expertise. That's why it's always important to have faculty and mentors who say, these white men did not create this stuff. Yeah. Right? And even if they did, Everything is up for critique. (laughs) Everything has flaws. Everything has issues. And, you know, if you cannot handle your idea being critiqued, keep it to yourself next time. And that's how we need to think about critiques of 
the mental health system, physical health system, reproductive system. I critique the child-free groups all the time. A mm-hmm. um, bunch of white folks who cannot handle a non-white person such as myself coming in and bringing up topics to which they are not giving me permission to speak about. And I tell people, well, hey, welcome to the world of critiques. Here we are. What kind of subjects um, are you referring to specifically? Well, I mean, this happens quite often when we discuss child-free life. Whenever we discuss, well, I'll just give you a, a recent example. When we're talking about things like abortion access, mm-hmm. it's very common for people to, like I'm pro-choice. And there are instances where someone will say, I'm child-free and I'm pro-life. And I remember years ago, somebody basically got booted out of a child-free group because they said they were pro-life. I have a problem with people being pro-life. I do have a problem with that. However, I have a difficult time telling someone they're not really child-free if they're pro-life. I have a difficult time with that. I mean, I'm pro-choice, but I have a problem with telling someone they're not really child-free because when I think about it from my culture, African-Americans who are child-free are not instantly going to be pro-choice, right? Because when we think about what it means to not have children, that's considered a sin enough based on religion, perhaps. And then they think in their mind they're killing babies. You know, it's like two strikes you're out before the third strike. So that's something that a lot of child free groups are not really consistently able to discuss how our view of being child free varies across different cultures of people and how views of abortion access. So for example, for quite a few of the African diaspora women that I interviewed for my research, quite a few of them are agnostic or atheist, which is interesting because they found that rejecting organized religion actually made them more free to make reproductive choices and sexual choices. I can relate to that directly. I'm also an agnostic and I, I was, like I said, I'm from, you know, Latinx. We're all from very, mm-hmm. very traditional Catholic cultures in general. But mm-hmm. I, I was lucky enough to have two parents uh, that were a little bit more liberal and they didn't even baptize me when I was born, which is very rare for somebody from my uh, generation. And oh, wow. um, yeah, it's really rare uh, because they wanted me to choose my religion when I grew up. And I think it's made things a lot easier because religion actually does have that factor of guilt, right? Anything that you yeah. do that goes against whatever your priest is telling you that you need to do, you have to feel guilty about. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why, I mean, and we all have biases, we all have assumptions, we all have ways that we think should things should be, and we're not, there's no such thing as a person who is open to everything. Like, whenever you meet someone who says, I'm cool with any opinion, that's a lie. <laughs> they just haven't come across one opinion that they refuse to be cool with, right? So that's one thing when we're talking about social change, we have to understand that social change and improving things like reproductive justice can only happen if we have those honest discussions. Absolutely. Of meaning. Yeah. I think that's very sound advice. And I think, uh, you know, every, anyone who's hearing this uh, podcast right now If you want to be part of social change, you have to be willing to take part of this difficult discussion. Yeah, like there's plenty of stuff that I disagree with, but I have to also check myself and learn daily that I disagree with stuff, but it doesn't make it false in terms of not existing. I just think it shouldn't exist. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, like, like pro-life child-free people, I think that <laughs> doesn't make sense to not believe in reproductive freedom all across the board. However, everyone has their deal breaker. Everyone has their closing door, right? Yeah. And for some people, that's true. Yeah, that is true. Well, uh, Dr. Dennis, it's been such a pleasure to have you here today. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? Thanks for asking that. So, yeah, I'll just say that we just need to keep having these discussions, these tough discussions. And I don't believe in being too careful with our words because humans have done that for thousands of years and lies and silence have perpetuated that. So I think we should keep having these discussions and people are free to read my social media. I type how I talk. <laughs> so <laughs> um, they are free to read me on LinkedIn. My Facebook page is live. Uh, excuse me, my Facebook page is public and my Twitter page and my Twitter page consists of angry white people and sometimes angry men. And one thing you'll notice is that whether I meet power majority people in person or on the internet when they're trying to troll my page, I tell them you're not going to silence my discussion. Excellent. White folks have enough faces. Yeah. Men have enough faces. You can't handle me. Find the plethora of white folks' faces. Find the plethora of men's faces. And so that's what I tell them online. The same way in person, they get told, and I don't smile to make them comfortable to hear it. That is... That's all. That is awesome. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to leave you guys, uh, Dr. Kimia Dennis, links to all of her social media right here. So you can follow her on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. And well, thanks again for your time. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, Continue fueling your inner fire.